Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today's episode is part of a seven-part series titled Religious Self-Destruction that examines indoctrination using models borrowed from identity psychology. I'll be explaining what indoctrination means to me and why I consider it a distinctly unique process that should be differentiated from other life experiences. This series mirrors articles found at the At Home in My Head blog, each of which contains links to sources and citations used in this podcast. A link to the table of contents for the Religious Self-Destruction article series is also included in the description, along with links to support and resources for those who come out of indoctrination. And now for episode three of Religious Self-Destruction, Life Inside a Foreclosed Identity. I wanted to understand more about foreclosed identity. And in 2017, I reached out to Dr. Dombeck and opened a correspondence with him. He was generous with his time and assistance. In addition to answering my questions, he pointed me toward other resources. He pointed out that some of the language was now obsolete and more updated language and models were now in use. He introduced me to something called psychological flexibility and suggested I look into Lorna Smith-Benjamin's Structural Analysis of Social Behavior, or SASB, sometimes called SASB. He provided a link to a podcast featuring Benjamin and another to a written summary. I recommend listening to the podcast, which is just under an hour, and reading the write-up in conjunction with this series. After listening to the podcast and reading the summary, I thought Dombeck misunderstood what I was looking for. It seemed unrelated to what I was asking about. It dealt with personality disorders, not identity, and I didn't see any connection to religious indoctrination. I then also reached out to a psychiatrist friend of mine, Dr. Rob Poole, who explained that what I was investigating was part of psychoanalytic tradition, and as a result, not as empirically robust as some other avenues, although still productive. He recommended I look into someone named Kernberg, and also noted someone named Kohut as another possible avenue. As I began researching the new information, I was struck again by a feeling I'd been misunderstood. Kernberg was talking about diffusion and borderline personalities. However, the materials from Dombeck and Poole had similarities. I wondered if the misunderstanding wasn't on my end, since both of them had recommended literature on personality disorders in response to my questions. Operating on the assumption that I was missing something relevant, I dove more deeply into the materials and went over them repeatedly, in addition to Googling to find more. In the meantime, however, I was having difficulty understanding the distinction between the foreclosed and achieved identities. Not many people believe, or will admit, that they chose their major life values, relationships, and vocations based on little or no understanding of what they were doing. Additionally, most people would be offended by that suggestion. 
When I was a Christian, I certainly would not have appreciated the suggestion I had not investigated or considered my beliefs extensively. But now I was recognizing there could be a disconnect between raw effort expended and work accomplished. Exploration could be productive or could be a lot of spinning wheels. How would someone know which category another person was in if the subjects themselves all believed they had put forth productive effort, whether they had or not? I understood the technical distinction between the foreclosed and the achieved identities, level of exploration. But how to evaluate exploration? The person who challenges their own beliefs versus the person who only uses confirming sources. How do I tell which category I am in or someone else is in, when everyone is reporting that they've worked hard and productively to come to their core values. Additionally, despite my resentment about having wasted so much of my life devoted to religious study and practice, I had to admit that in many ways I was a model young person as a Christian. I was physically healthy, considered well-behaved, motivated by positive attention, college and career-oriented. I also had good grades. Nice friends, no addiction issues, no abusive partners. I was the kid other kids' parents loved. Was it that bad if I was in a foreclosed state? I reached out again to Dr. Dombeck to ask, and he allowed me permission to share his response as follows. I think you could sum it up by saying that a person with foreclosed identity would be forever in a state of internal dissonance, and so would experience at some level, whether noticed consciously or not, some internal conflict, stress, pain, and I think to be very shame-prone. We would expect them to deny this vigorously, of course, at least in public, but I'd bet money it would be there. Several things hit me upon reading the above quote. First, this was pretty much my life as a Christian. Like that patient, I was always chastising myself for being myself, for being human. I prayed constantly to be a better person, to be forgiven, to not be so willful as to pursue my own motives or goals, but to be subservient to the will of God, which was perfect. And I was lucky. I was the cishet white girl. I can only imagine the struggle compounded by someone dealing with homosexuality or transgender concerns or even someone coping with marital abuse or sexual abuse and the guilt associated with that in authoritarian religious models. If a person who is closely associated with the dominant social and cultural expectations experiences constant internal struggle, what is the impact on someone who isn't so lucky? Next, how is it I endured this day and night for years and years and never recognized it as a negative mental health outcome? Even after being outside of religion for many years and ultimately becoming satisfied with myself as a human being, I still could not look back and recognize that as detrimental. It wasn't until a few years ago when Dombeck laid it out in those terms that the light bulb went on and I realized how awful it sounded. As a Christian, I had actually seen this as a positive situation, but how? How could anyone live with ongoing and endless internal conflict and struggle, constantly suppressing who they are and say they are happy and fulfilled and experiencing a positive existence? If you felt this way about your job or your marriage, for example, you'd know something was wrong. This was something I had to step away from and think about for many days. It was also, at this point, more of these inputs began falling into place, and part of that was due to something else Dombeck wrote to me, which was this. 
A modern successor to Rogers' work is Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT, which discusses psychological flexibility as the core construct underlying whether psychopathology will be present or not. A person with foreclosed identity would not exhibit such flexibility and instead would be quite rigidly clinging to their introjected beliefs. So it was here I began to pick up some new vocabulary and clues. Remember when the information that Dombeck and Poole tossed my way didn't seem connected? It was now beginning to connect. I began looking for information about psychological flexibility and found an article that promoted ACT. It said, Psychological flexibility is currently measured by the Acceptance and Action Questionnaire, the AAQ-2. In a broad number of studies, scores on the AAQ indicating low psychological flexibility have been found to predict the following. Higher anxiety, more depression, more overall pathology, poorer work performance, inability to learn, substance abuse, lower quality of life, depression, alexithemia, anxiety sensitivity, long-term disability, worry, in other words, almost everything. My takeaway from that quote was that it was an indicator of some problematic issues that can ruin people's lives. This explained the literature I'd been urged to consider regarding personality disorders. The message was clear. Foreclosed identity equals inflexibility equals problems. Another bit of information I came across was published in an article entitled Inflexible Parents, Inflexible Kids, a six-year longitudinal study of parenting style and the development of psychological flexibility in adolescence. It was published in the Journal of Youth and Adolescence in 2012. It took a more glass-half-full attitude, associating increased flexibility with better mental health outcomes. Here's a quote from the article. There is increasing evidence that learning flexible, contextually appropriate regulatory strategies, known as psychological flexibility, contributes to healthy development. This state of psychological flexibility lacking in people with foreclosed identities is noted in other research as well. Identity in Childhood Adolescence is a paper that was published in 2001 in the International Encyclopedia of Social and Behavioral Sciences and had this to say, foreclosed individuals are the least cognitively flexible of the statuses and the most highly endorsing of authoritarian values suggesting a relatively unmodified ego ideal. They employ conventional reasoning about moral issues and either acquiesce superficially to or stubbornly resist positions discrepant from their own. This quote was in line with what I'd found elsewhere. It was talking about the inability of foreclosed identities to consider challenges. The trick wasn't so much to get someone to believe something false, but to somehow get them to remain in that belief by avoiding challenges and only exploring confirming sources. And yet information is all around us, challenging us daily. How could I or anyone study Christian beliefs for years and completely avoid learning, for example, about the historic origins of the Bible? In my case, and in the case of many I've met over the years, that's actually what happened. But how? As I read, I kept seeing myself when I was a Christian. In the past, trying to find information on indoctrination, nothing resonated. But now, all of it did. The more I read, the more I saw myself in these descriptions, and after giving this talk a few times, I know others do as well. Feel free to research more on your own. It's a broad topic, and this barely scratches the surface. But the next question was, 
What is psychological flexibility? What does it look like? We're going to tackle that in part four. But before doing that, I'd like to tag on some bonus material, a word about alexithemia. Alexithemia was one of the mental health outcomes listed earlier that is associated with foreclosure. When I gave this talk the last time, I devoted a moment to explaining this particular label to the audience. I was surprised that at least half the people who stopped to talk to me after the presentation were coming up to tell me they related to this label and had spent their lives thinking there was something wrong with them. Some of them concerned they were sociopaths. They seemed relieved to learn the word and also that what they've been coping with could be managed and understood. Just as I had been unable to understand my indoctrination experience, they'd spent their lives knowing they were different and thinking they were alone. Alexithemia is a term for people who have trouble processing and understanding their own emotions. They may have emotional experiences, but they aren't the common variety the rest of us relate to. Or they may be emotionally void and have to relate to others in a more practical way. So they may cry and not understand it's associated with sadness. Or they may experience a mix of confusing and complex strong emotions and not be able to understand what they're experiencing or why. They may confuse emotions that have similar physical responses like fear and excitement. If you've spent your life doubting that you're having the same experience as others when it comes to emotions, you might want to Google this label and do some research. There are some casual online diagnostic tests you could take. It might help you to understand yourself better and also help you help others to understand you. Sometimes non-alexithemic people misinterpret the emotional distance as not caring and feel unloved. And while they may not be getting love from an alexithemic partner, it doesn't mean they aren't valued. It's a bit like being upset your partner can't hug you if they have no arms. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out the information and support links in the description. As always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.